Well, good morning. Great to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, please join me in finding in yours Revelation chapter 20, the 20th chapter in the book of the Revelation. If you have been with us over the last several months, you know that we have been talking about the millennial kingdom and more specifically, the characteristics of the millennial kingdom. This morning, we want to continue our lessons on the characteristics of the millennial kingdom by looking at two characteristics inextricably linked, longevity and fertility, longevity and fertility. What if I told you the millennial kingdom will be inhabited with non-believers, non-believers in their natural bodies, the bodies just like the ones you and I have this morning? And what if I told you they will have children, lots of children, and some will believe and some will not? We now know believers will have their glorified bodies in the millennial kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15 and 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. And when we mean our glorified bodies, we mean bodies like our Lord Jesus Christ, a body that will never die again. And we will receive an imperishable body. And for this reason, 1 Corinthians 15 and 50, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So you need a glorified body to inherit the kingdom of God. That's your ticket in to inheritance. Notice the apostle used the word inherit. We need an imperishable body to inherit the kingdom. Now, the idea of inheriting the kingdom is unique. Now, get this only to the believer. Matthew 25 and 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. Non-believers will not inherit the kingdom. This morning, however, we shall learn many will enter the kingdom. Large numbers of unbelievers in their earthly bodies, like the ones we now have, will inhabit the earth all throughout the 1,000 years of the millennial kingdom. Now, why should we believe this? Well, we're going to make a case for this throughout our lesson this morning, but let's begin with Revelation 20. Revelation 20, verses 7 and 8, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Several months back, one of our members asked, why would God release the devil? Why would he do that? In, in a few verses preceding verses 7 and 8, he imprisoned him for a thousand years. Now he is releasing him. And one of our members asked, why would he do that? Well, we're going to try to answer that question this morning. Now, I think there's one reason why the question may have been asked, and that has to do with what I just mentioned. He was in prison for a thousand years. If he is in prison 
why not just leave him there? Why release him? I sure hope this morning's lesson answers those two very important questions. Many believers have been led to believe the misconception that everyone in the kingdom is a believer. And perhaps that misconception has contributed to the question, why would he release him? Let's put on our thinking caps. If only believers are in the kingdom, then who are these people from these nations in verses 7 and 8, the devil deceives when? When the thousand years are complete. Clearly, they are not believers. Now, why should we believe they are unsaved? Well, John saw that the number of the rebels will be like the sand of the seashore, a figure of speech used in Scripture to describe a vast, uncountable multitude. And what will they do? One last revolt against Christ. Notice the location of the revolt in verse 8. The four corners of heaven. No, the four corners of the earth. I thought we read back in Revelation 11 and 15, the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord. Why then are there so many non-believers deceived by the devil all over this world during the kingdom that has become the kingdom of this world now becomes the kingdom of our Lord? And notice... We're reading in verses 7 and 8 in Revelation 20. We're not at the beginning, but the very end of the 1,000 years. How did they get there? Do you know what this means? It means the kingdom of this world that becomes the kingdom of our Lord still has unsaved people, and it's so much so that they are described as sand on the seashore. Someone might be thinking, are you trying to tell us there will be unsaved people? Now get this throughout the 1,000 years? Yes. This morning, we begin to unpack a prophetic puzzle that has caused much confusion and misconception. So let's put this puzzle together one piece at a time, and hopefully by lesson's end, the picture will be clear. Piece number one, timing. Timing. What, What time is it? Well, remember, the second coming precedes the 1,000-year kingdom. Look at Revelation 19 and 11 for a moment. Revelation 19 and 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Drop down to verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now, you put these two verses together, and here's what we have. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming a second time to this earth. And when he comes, he's coming with the saints, and he's coming to wage war with the enemies of Israel. Look at verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So this war is going to take place on earth with the kings of the earth. And we now know from our series in the Revelation that when we turn the page from Revelation 19 to Revelation 20, we are introduced six times to the words 1,000 years. So, If we follow the chronology, the 1,000-year millennial kingdom follows the second coming of Christ. But not just here in the Revelation. It also follows 
in the book of Zechariah. So turn with me to Zechariah 14, and I'd like to just read the opening words in verse 4. Zechariah 14, verse 4. Zechariah 14 and 4. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. We now know this is a reference to his second coming. He taught his disciples in Matthew 24 about the second coming from the Mount of Olives. He ascended to the Father's right hand in Acts chapter 1 from the Mount of Olives. And he's going to return to the Mount of Olives when he comes a second time. Now, now what precedes his second coming in Matthew 24? The great tribulation for Israel. And and what precedes his second coming in Zechariah 14? Well, chapters 12 and 13 in Zechariah are all about Israel's great tribulation. Zechariah 12 and 3, all the nations will be gathered against Jerusalem. Jesus referenced this in Matthew 24 when teaching his disciples about the signs that precede his second coming. There will be worldwide hatred of the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. Now look at Zechariah 14 and 12. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will not will rot while they stand on their feet and their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouth. Now back in Revelation 19, we read, and I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And what do we read in verse 12 of Zechariah 14? The Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. So we're just putting this prophetic timepiece, this this puzzle together, and we're, we're understanding that the second coming precedes the kingdom. Now look at verse 16. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. I wonder if you saw what I just saw. Then any who are left. Can I say that again? Then any who are left. Do you know what this means? This means after Jesus comes the second time to wage war with all the nations, there are survivors from amongst the nations, from amongst the armies that waged war against Jesus. And it means one more thing people get saved. Boy, is this God's mercy again? Think about it. These are Israel's enemies. These are our Lord's enemies. He comes to wage war with them, and he doesn't exterminate all of them. Some of them survive, and some of them get saved. How do we know this? Verse 16, they will go up from year to year to worship Jesus. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a converted believer to me. From amongst those who fought and lost, they will they will be saved. They will be saved. But look, we have a kingdom filled with unsaved people at the end of the kingdom who wage war with Jesus, right? How did they get there? That we see that there are those who are left from amongst the nations. Some of them get saved. Some of them go to Jerusalem and worship. But notice verses 17 and 19. 
And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king. These, these are from those who are left. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Do you see what I see? I see unsaved people entering the kingdom. I see unsaved people entering the kingdom. I see people entering the kingdom and getting saved. Jesus comes the second time to wage war with the enemies of Israel. And some of those people from among all the nations who are left enter the kingdom. And some believe. And some do not. They do not inherit the kingdom. They enter the kingdom. Do you know what we call this? Sinners in the kingdom. Those who, who survive the tribulation will enter the millennium in their natural bodies. Now follow along. Zechariah 14 is the beginning of the 1,000 years. Revelation 20 and 7, the end of the 1,000 years. At the end of the 1,000 years, Satan will deceive nations. This means that 1,000 years later, there are still unsaved people in the kingdom. How can this be? Well, these two inextricably linked characteristics of the millennial kingdom, longevity and fertility, longevity and fertility. Turn with me to Isaiah 65. One last turn this morning, Isaiah 65. The book of, the, of Isaiah and the book of the Revelation are prophecies that prove the presence of unglorified people in their natural bodies during the kingdom age with two lines of evidence, the occurrence of death and the occurrence of birth in the millennial kingdom. With your Bibles open to Isaiah 25, or 65 rather, I'd like to direct your attention to verse 20. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. For the youth will die at the age of 100. When someone li lives to be 100 years of age, do we describe them with the word youth? No. Someone who lives to be 100 is thought of as a very old man, but not in the kingdom. In the kingdom, there are two characteristics inextricably linked, longevity and fertility. You ask, where is fertility? Well, notice the word infant in verse 20. Babies will be born in the kingdom, and they will not live just a few days. What does this mean? Longevity. Babies living to be 100 years of age, listen, will become the norm. Do you know what this means? People will be living longer. Look, if a 100-year-old man is a youth, then what is a middle-aged man? 500? Verse 20, the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. Don't miss that. 
Miss what? Some infants will not believe in the kingdom. They are a curse. But look, during that 1,000-year period where they did not believe, they had children, and their children have children, and their children have children. By the way, how do you become an infant in verse 20? Men and women procreate, right? Pregnancy in the kingdom in order for there to be an infant. On a side note, by the way, why do we believe Isaiah 65 is a kingdom passage? Well, verse 25, the wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and the dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Never before since the fall of man has the animal kingdom gotten along with each other, but in the kingdom, even animals that eat each other will eat together. Peaceful fellowship for the wolf and the lamb. Now, now this is important. This is something to get. Procreation would not be possible. There'd be no such thing as an infant during the millennial kingdom if all the inhabitants were people with glorified bodies. Now, why? Well, we're going to answer that question. Luke 20, verses 34 and 35. Listen carefully. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, that's glorified bodies, neither marry nor are given in marriage. When did church folk receive their resurrected bodies? At the rapture. When does believing Israel receive theirs? at the second coming. How about the tribulation saints that died? Revelation 24, at the very beginning of the kingdom. When will Isaiah 65 and 20 be fulfilled? Verse 17, it will take place when God creates new heavens and a new earth. Is this the millennial kingdom when Jesus the Messiah rules on earth? or the eternal state. The Apostle John, when writing about the eternal state, not to be confused with the kingdom, wrote in Revelation 21 and 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. But this cannot be the same new heaven and new earth referred to by Isaiah. Why? Well, people living on the new earth in Isaiah 65 and 20 will still experience sin, death, and God's curse on unbelievers. However, the new earth mentioned in Revelation 21, we read, there will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. No death in this new earth, but in the new earth in Isaiah 65, we have death. So what are we to make of this new earth in Isaiah 65? Well, for one, it's the earth we are living in now. However, it is new in the sense that animals that usually eat one another now lay alongside one another in peace. And, and number two, the 100-year-old person is described as a youth. 
clearly this new earth in Isaiah 65 is monumentally different than this world we've been living on. The elderly will be considered young. For, for example, Adam lived to 930 years, Genesis 5 and 5. Noah lived 950 years, Genesis 9 and 29. Methuselah lived 969 years, Genesis 5 and 27. Do we see people living to those ages anymore? No. But we will in the kingdom. Several months back, the question was asked, why did God allow the devil to come out after a thousand years had expired? I'd like to add a question to that question. Why did he imprison him in the first place? Why not put him in prison for all eternity? Why imprison him and then let him out? Mercy. God is a God of mercy and love. I think we have enough kingdom characteristics to know that the kingdom will be a time unlike any time we have ever experienced. We all we all we all know that, right? The times and the characteristics of the millennial kingdom are unlike any other time. And despite how wonderful it is, man refuses to repent and believe and would sooner fight, sooner fight Jesus one more time. When? At the end of the 1,000 years. They, they fought him at his second coming. Or the beginning of the 1,000 years. You would think they learned their lesson. They, they fight. They want to fight again after losing. Don't they? Why? Well, who gets the blame for why people disbelieve? 2 Corinthians 4 and 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For 1,000 years, something this world has never experienced since Adam and Eve sinned. What? A gospel with no interference from the devil. Let me read 2 Corinthians 4 and 4 one more time. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, is imprisoned for a thousand years. Think about it. Jesus defeats the whole world and the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord. And this kingdom has perfect peace for the believer, perfect righteousness for the believer, perfect justice for the believer. Even the animals get along for the believer. Last week we learned, come, buy without cost, without money. Despite how wonderful the kingdom is, man wants no part of worshiping Jesus. Even the never-before-seen or lived-in conditions of the millennial kingdom will not change the sad reality of human depravity. Do, do you see what, what I see? Why imprison the devil? 
So man has no one to blame but himself. I believe Jesus lets him... I believe Jesus lets him out in order to give them their God. And who is the world's God? The devil. We just read that in 2 Corinthians 4, right? In whose case the God of this world. Jesus lets him out in order to give them their God, the devil, one last time. And one last time. Jesus will win. Why let him out one last time? Because one last time God's mercy towards man is given. And what happens? Some get saved. So why release him? One last time he will forever be punished. My friend, I wonder if you know the importance of the gospel. I wonder if you understand the significance of you're not promised tomorrow. The Bible repeatedly makes the point today is the day of salvation. It is so important that you repent and believe the gospel. The word repent means to change your mind, to change your mind about what you believe and how you behave. What must you believe to escape judgment? Well, you need to change your mind and believe who Jesus is. Jesus is the eternal son of God. He's the one born to that woman in Isaiah 7. The virgin will bear a child and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. You need to believe Jesus is God and man. He is God with us. And he came to this world. He led a sinless life. He died on a cruel tree for our sins. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. This you must change your mind and believe. He has ascended to the Father's right hand where he has taken his seat because his work is finished on earth. This you must believe. And that brings us to a change in belief about me, about you. We don't just change our mind about what we believe about Jesus, but about ourselves. And we can't save ourselves. James says, if you keep the whole law and you stumble in one point, you're guilty of all. Jesus says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. When you put those two verses together, you clearly understand the Bible teaches, if you want to get to heaven, you need to be perfect. And therefore, every one of us ought to concede our imperfections. And even if your imperfection is but one, James says, it's but all. If you keep the whole law and stumble in one point, you're guilty of all. You see, God is a perfect God. Holiness, his holiness, is the measuring rod for who we really are. We need to change our minds about who we really are. We are sinners in need of a Savior, and Jesus is our only hope, our only Savior. But repentance is also a change in mind and behavior. In the Revelation, they refuse to repent of the works of their hands. They refuse to repent of their lies, their adultery, their sorceries, their wickedness, their worship of idols. So repentance is also a change of mind in how I behave. Both 
is a work of grace. God, twice in the book of Acts, we read, God granted repentance that, that leads to life. God granted repentance. So when you change your mind about what you believe and how you behave, please understand that's a work of God's granting grace. I pray this morning you repent and believe the gospel and escape so much of what the revelation tells us is a time unlike any other time. May God bless you, my friend, and may God bless his word.